Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month, they deliver them to your doorstep. This episode is also sponsored by our Patreon supporters, Monique Harris-Pixado, Caitlin McTaggart, Lindsay Cummings, Jamie Lang, Maria Carla Sanchez, Chantel Oliver, Valerie Jacobson, Ellen Gross, Jill Harrigan, Heather McKinnon, Bella, Jan Cannon, Morgan Turner, Cheryl Means, and Marie Elaine Kelly. Huge thanks to all our patrons. Hi, Katie. Well, hello, Olivia. I hope you brought your popcorn. Oh, how did you know? I mean, we're going to the movies. We are? So, you have to have popcorn. It is 1917. Ooh. Hollywood, California. We're approaching the set of one of the biggest hit movies of 1917, Poor Little Rich Girl, where the actors and the crew are preparing for the most important scene in the film. Oh, wait, so not the Shirley Temple one, because this is 1917. Yeah, not the Shirley Temple one, but hold that thought. Okay. Let's get ready to make a movie. Oh! Places, everyone. The director's about to start the filming. And I am delighted to bring our listeners the podcast premiere of the recently rediscovered footage of the most important scene in this fantastic, groundbreaking film. Ooh! We're about to roll. Are you ready? Wow! And action! Uh. <laughs> oh, did I mention this is a silent film? <laughs> that doesn't yeah, quite come across. Movies on the on radio, radio. <laughs> are, are already somewhat difficult. Silent films on the radio are uniquely problematic. <laughs> so I do encourage everyone to go check out these films we're going to be talking about online. A lot of them are available to watch now, and they're amazing. But they did have a pianist. Sitting at the piano playing some great yes, stuff. Yes, they did. And our grandmother yes. was one of those pianists making up music on the fly for whatever film she was watching at the moment. Oh, I, I for some reason, that's just proud legacy for me. Playing for the oh, silent films. It. Fantastic. Yeah. And just the skill set required to totally just watch the movie and make stuff up I mean, and play along with whatever's happening. I studied piano from age three to age 18, and I could never do that. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, but wh where is our leading lady? Who's the actress? Psh, leading lady? What makes yeah. you think we're talking about an actress? Because it's 1917. Yes, all you and when get. we think of silent films, we have this very specific image in our mind, right? Right. Dramatic actress. But there's a few actresses who, whose faces we will forever associate with this era. Right. The, you know, the people we think of are universally the people on the screen. But I am embarrassed to admit that one person I had never thought of in terms of silent film was the person who is writing the script. Oh, well, yeah. How do you write a script where nobody talks? Precisely. <laughs> so today we are going to meet one of the most important and influential screenwriters of the huh. 20th century. She was a superstar of the early days of the US film industry and her life is as dramatic and full of twists and turns and heart Aww. as any of the movies that she wrote. Wow. And she wrote a lot, 325 to be precise. Wow, really? Her name is Frances Marion, and she was one of the most important architects of what film looks like. Wow. She set so many of the patterns of what we think of as American cinema, huh. and yet she's nowhere. Yeah. No one talks about her, nobody knows who she is. Wow, fascinating. So today we're going to fix that. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Now, let's talk about screenwriting for a minute. Even today, screenwriters get very little love. <laughs> Movie stars are the stars. Sometimes directors will become famous in their own right, mm -hmm. but there are very, very few famous screenwriters. Mm. We don't revere screenwriters yeah. in the same way or at the same volume that we yeah, do if, actors. If anything, the pattern is like one person writes it and then they bring it to another writer who tinkers with it. Then they give it to another one who changes it some more. Like the final product yeah. is never what any one writer wrote. And really, the only screenwriters I think who we know are the ones who are also directors, right? They write uh, and direct the movie, and that's why we know their name. But we don't know the people who yeah. write movies and just write movies. As a writer, this annoys me. <laughs> of course it would. More attention for writers. <laughs> but I must admit that even my first instinct was exactly what you said to dismiss the idea of a silent film screenwriter because uh -huh. they are not complicated masterpieces of in-depth mm. storytelling yeah, yeah, in the yeah. way we think of them. They're, as you said, no one's speaking, although there are words on screen. Right. How hard could they be? And then I smack myself because mm -hmm. I, you and I have first-hand experience recently of trying to distill huge themes and mm. epic stories or <laughs> small stories told very, very deep yeah. into a format with extremely specific limitations. Oh, yeah. It's so much harder. I bet. They, she must have been limited by, like, 
what they can and can't film and you know what yeah what sets they could build and what they couldn't and what could be lit and what couldn't and almost almost everything has to happen without words so you're writing emotional acting and you mm. have to give that direction mm. for your actors that sounds like a fun challenge actually like you're just yeah, writing a I, story I, with stage directions and giving yeah it instantly heart. i thought <laughs> i want to try this yeah cool she is innovating entirely new creative genre film mm. they're all making everything up from scratch it's impossible for us to think about that i think now mm. You have never done this. No one, the the things that we think of as just how you make a movie were decisions that people yeah. made that have now become so inevitable we can't even imagine anything else. But they could have done something else. Mm. And they were formatting an entire field. And the skills that Frances Marion brought to that shifts film forever. Mm. So for this adventure, I spoke to film historian and author Pam Munter. Hi, my name is Pam Munter, and I am the author of the latest book is called Fading Fame, Women of a Certain Age in Hollywood. And it consists of 10 short stories and two short plays about women who have aged out of the profession they love. One of them, unfortunately, is Mary Pickford, who had an interesting friendship with Frances Marion. In between, I've done a few other things. I've been a clinical psychologist for a quarter of a century. I'm no longer doing that. Doctor is not my first name anymore. Four books in the last 10 years or so. And now I'm eager to talk to you about one of my favorite people, Francis Marion. I discovered Mary Pickford really inadvertently as a nine-year-old kid when I bought my very first book a silent screen history of Hollywood. I devoured, I didn't know what it was. I was too young really to know what silent movies were, but I started looking them up and became absolutely fascinated. That led me to become a film historian eventually and to write about movies, mostly obscure people. The famous have been written about ad nauseum. So I'm interested in the ones that people don't remember and sadly won't remember. Fading Fame is such a fascinating book. I really highly recommend it. And Pam Munter feels like the most fitting person to introduce us to Frances Marion, actually, because much like Pam Munter is a Renaissance woman, Frances Marion did everything. Huh. You know those annoying people who just seem to be good at all the things? Yes. That's Frances. Mm. She refused to be limited to one job or one field or even one genius <laughs> she was constantly expanding and spreading her skill set out into new territory and she was just absolutely brilliant at all of it cool she weathered a lot of storms she was born in 1888 in san francisco her parents were well to do her father was a businessman he owned an advertising agency her mother was a society belle, knew everyone who was anyone. The house was filled with artsy people. So Frances was exposed early on to creative people. So this is a familiar story 
in this podcast, I think, and in history in general, this house full of creatives. Mm-hmm. The exposure of a child to all of these people who are making and doing new innovative things and having these conversations around her as she's growing up. And I think there's lots of obvious things that does, but to me, I think the most important thing that that does for a kid is to just install the idea of art as a worthwhile and a possible pursuit Mm -hmm. for your life. Mm -hmm. And it matters. Yeah. Whatever the family culture, it has that effect on people. So it could be like a family of, you know, ranchers. Yeah. And so they just do it. It's just like, well, this is just what I do. Yeah. I just compete at rodeos who doesn't yeah this is what (laughs) this is what being a person is this is what you do this is what she's growing up in and it infuses the rest of her life with this kind of idea of the importance and possibility of a life built in creativity she lived there uh until she left for los angeles but before she got there she had some rather life-changing events one of them happened when she was 10. Her parents divorced. That was shocking in those days. Father ran off with that other woman, which was even more upsetting to the family. Mother, I guess, plowed through. Didn't seem to bother her much. She went right on. Father kept supporting the family, so her standard of living wasn't in decline. And then she is kicked out of school. <laughs> She drew a caricature of her teacher on the blackboard. (laughs) And apparently it was already as a teenager good enough that Frances Marion was removed from the school. Wow. Not just one school either. She is blackballed from every school in San Francisco. And she was banished from all public schools in the area because of that according to her biographers, didn't bother her. I I find that hard to believe, but... This girl has too much fire. I would have been absolutely crushed by this as a child who wanted adults to like me. I think that would have really impacted the rest of my life in a negative way. That's funny, I feel the opposite. I relate to that rebellious spirit, just... I mean, I also really wanted to be liked and, you know, was not a troublemaker at all. But if a power structure was unfair in that Mm. kind of way, oh boy, I would want to get kicked out. She seems to have been unfazed. Our dad, as a child, famously, the teacher left the room during a recording of an orchestral concert and returned to find him standing on his desk conducting the orchestra. Yeah, Yeah, in like first grade. Yeah, and responded by punishing him with forcing him to write a new report about music history every day during music time. (laughs) Um, This maybe feels kind of like that, where the, the teacher thinks they are stamping out this tendency toward whatever they see this as. Mm-hmm. And in reality, you are just kind of affirming yeah. for the kid that, you know, I mean, our dad was thrilled. This was exactly what he wanted to do anyway. Yeah. I wonder if this was kind of a, a good lesson for her of the power of art mm-hmm. in, in um, sticking it to the man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but shortly thereafter, she contracted polio and was home for a while. We don't know how long, but she was... When she recovered, she was sent to a, sort of a prep school for young girls to 
rough out the edges. It didn't work, but it taught her some social graces, which she always laughed about. But those social graces would actually serve her very well, as I'm sure did the modeling from her socialite mom. Sure. She was famously charming. Frances Marion was a deeply seductive figure. And I don't mean sexually. Well, yes, also sexually, apparently, Mm -hmm. but just personally. She was a personally seductive person. Everyone Mm. loved her. Everyone wanted to be around her. She Mm. was an attractor, right? She was just this really magnetic, charismatic personality. Ah. But at 16, she went back to her first love, which was art. She was a fantastic artist. And she went to a art school in San Francisco where she met her first husband, Wesley. And then in 1906, she and her beau were sitting in a park in San Francisco on a picnic. And this being 1906 in San Francisco. I was just thinking, hold on, 1906 San Francisco, the earthquake hits. The earthquake hits (gasps) and they watched the city burn to the ground from the park. Whoa. Imagine sitting there looking out. You're just on a picnic picnic. with your boyfriend. (laughs) And all of a sudden the world is falling down around you. Wow, that is wild. And though, as we learned in one of your episodes, the San Francisco fire was actually quite helpful to save the Chinese immigrant population, it wasn't great for Francis Marion's family. I'm sure. Well, dad lost his business. The family didn't do very well. Wow. She got married. As you do. As you do in 1906. As you do in 1906. You're a woman. woman. Yeah. She married the man with whom she was watching the city burn down, Wesley DeLapp who was also an artist and a graphic designer. His most well-known work now are the famous standard oil posters of the (laughs) early 20th century, which were, you know, when advertising posters were these, like, beautiful artistic masterpieces. Uh They're wild. They're all sorts of nature, and it's kind of like, look at all the beautiful stuff we will destroy to bring you oil. It's weird. Wow. Well, he's working for the man, the ultimate man. So we are allowed to dislike him, okay. which is good, because oh. he was not ready to be married, mm. shall we say, constantly cheating and also bringing in no money whatsoever. She's trying to support them both mm-hmm. as an artist, which was probably as hard then as it is now. Yeah. She's taking whatever job she can find. She worked as a newspaper reporter for the San Francisco newspaper. She was working as an artist. She became an assistant to the famous photographer David Gentha. All the photographs that you've seen of the San Francisco earthquake, those were probably him. Interesting. So she's working with him and learning really important skills, right? About photography, about. I mean, that is pioneering in the early 1900s. And he's pioneering new things. He's one of the first people to move into autochrome. I mean, he he really is pushing the boundaries, and she's right there. Helping, watching. Cool. But her marriage is a disaster. They're barely scraping by. So when she gets offered a job as an artist in a film company in Hollywood. Go, girl, go. She waves goodbye. Yes. To Wesley, gets on a train, and that's the end of that marriage. 
Wow. That, that is so bold for that time period. It's easy enough yeah. for us to say, like, leave him today. But back yeah. then. She is never one to stand on convention, mm-hmm. let's say. Then she met Lois Weber, who was a well-known then first woman director in Hollywood. Again, another obscure name we don't know much about today, unfortunately. They liked each other right away, and Lois wanted her to be an actress because Frances was gorgeous. If you look at pictures of her, she's just a knockout, prettier than a lot of the women that were on the screen then. Did she give it a try? Yeah, it just wasn't her thing. So she asked Lois if she might try writing scenarios, which was what screenplays were called then. And Lois said, well, let me teach you. And so they worked together and Frances learned how to write screenplays from Lois Weber. Here again is another pattern. Women supporting women. Mm. Women who will not see other women in this Mm. insanely competitive field in Mm. a deeply patriarchal time. They refuse to see other women as yeah. problems to be destroyed. They support one another. They teach each other skills. They advocate for each other. And that's exactly what Lois Weber does for her. She takes her under her wing and teaches her screenwriting. Cool. When Lois is offered a job at Universal Studios, she offers to take Frances with her. But Frances decides it's time to set out on her own. Oh, Now, to understand the story of Frances Marion, we need to first meet another really crucial figure of silent film, Mary Pickford. Now, some listeners may have heard of her. Yeah, that name rings a bell. I would bet that almost all of them will recognize her. Okay. She is the beautiful young ingenue with the very long curly hair. Oh yeah, there she is. The iconic damsel in distress. She is the virtuous young girl who was naive and victimized by every man and woman in history and somehow came out intact and full of virtue. (laughs) Wholesomeness with a capital W. Wow. They were of the times, you know, that's what people wanted to see. So she writes a scenario for Mary Pickford and this combination is magic. That whole shtick that we just talked about for Mary Pickford, the ingenue, the hair, the image, mm. all of that is Francis. Francis invents huh. Mary Pickford's image and she becomes a super mega star. They made dozens of movies together. They wow. are so wildly successful. They started winning awards, both of them. This is a perfect partnership. Mm. She was one of the highest paid scriptwriters in Hollywood, by far. Dang! $50,000 a year to write films for Mary Pickford in 1918. Wow! Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Maybe you're looking for experiences for your kids this holiday season instead of stuff. 
Girls Can Crate delivers a monthly package that teaches them about a real woman who changed the world. Every crate features a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. And use the code HERNAME, all one word, to get 20% off your first month's crate on any subscription that you order. It's designed for kids, but honestly, I think it's fun for adults. I have had many moments of awe based on these subscription box for children. (laughs) And they would make an amazing gift. Check them out now at girlscancratecrate.com. And when you order, make sure you use the coupon code HERNAME, all caps, so that they know we sent you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the early 1920s, she had married a third time to a minister she met on a troop boat. There's another second husband in there he's not even really worth talking about. Okay. In 1918, she is doing a Goodwill tour to the injured soldiers uh, with Mary Pickford. And she meets this man who is a wounded military chaplain, Fred Thompson. Falls hard in love. Ha! And they are married very quickly. Wow. And this, I think, shows how close she and Mary Pickford were. They both got married at roughly the same time Francis's third marriage, Mary's second. And they went on their honeymoon together, all four of them. Wow! Which seems odd, but honeymoons were different, right? Sure. This is a three-month tour of Europe kind of honeymoon. Yeah. but. So they were were best friends. And she loved Fred Thompson, but she also was not okay with him being just a minister. Why? What does she want him to be? Well, she wanted him to be a movie star. (laughs) And so he did. Now, Fred came from a long line of ministers, so this was asking a lot. She turned Fred Thompson almost overnight from a mild-mannered cowboy minister (laughs) into a cowboy movie hero. Wow. He was a cowboy for real with amazing stunt riding skills, let's say. And Uh she saw instantly this could be huge on the screen. Yeah, that's what she does, see people's potential. Exactly, and so she started writing him cowboy movies. Cool. And they were wildly successful. He can do these incredible trick riding, all these amazing stunts. He has these well-trained horses, but especially one horse that he trained to act. He trained the horse to make different facial expressions on cue. He trained the horse to react in fear to certain things, fake fear. I mean, he trained a horse to act. Oh, that's cool. And he would do these amazing, wildly dangerous stunts on horseback Hmm. and all of these crazy things. Really incredible. 
And they made a lot of money. They built a huge mansion on the hill. They had two children. Mary Pickford famously has a huge compound called Pick Fair that is <laughs> sort of Mary World. Wow. Frances Marion builds a huge compound at the highest point in Hollywood. Really? Frances Marion's ranch compound what? with their giant house and huge stables with all of his horses, ton wow. horses and racing horses. The biggest compound in Hollywood. The pictures are amazing. I'll put some on the website. Really incredible. Is it still there? It was still there until 1997. And still in pristine, gorgeous shape when Paul Allen from Microsoft bought it Uh and bulldozed everything. No. No. All of it. Ah. The mansion, the stables, the cowboy house where the stable hands would live, the pool, (gasps) the garden, all of it. And then apparently lost interest in the project and just walked away. No. And now it is just an empty (gasps) lot. (gasps) The historic preservation executive director in me is seething. I'm so angry about this. Yes. Okay. (sighs) They seem to be extremely, extremely happy. She's finally found it. Uh Uh-oh. And then Fred Thompson stepped on a nail in the barn. No. And... Died two weeks later of tetanus. What? No. Yep. Are you serious? Jeez. <gasps> he just stepped on a nail. He was a cowboy. He really was a cowboy. And he stepped, he on, stepped a nail. on a nail and died. On Christmas Day. Ugh. Wow. And she's on her own again. Aww. It's so sad. Now, in the 20s, a couple of major things happened. One was that the Wall Street men discovered that there was money in Hollywood, and they started to come in and take over studios. And so there's massive consolidation. Early on, women had a chance. You know, Mary Pickford by that time had run her own studio. She'd been one of the founders and ran United Artists, which is still in operation today. And of course, Frances was a successful screenwriter, as was Anita Luce and June Mathis and Dorothy Parker. All of them were very successful then. When the men came in, however, things started to change. Up until this point, films have not been a huge money-making enterprise. They've been doing fine, but they were small concerns. These are small sort of freelancer Mm -hmm. studios, right? As soon as the money guys get involved, all of that goes away. Mm. This free-for-all of creativity where women can be successful disappears almost overnight. The movie studios had consolidated completely. And there were five major studios with five awful white men running them. And none of them had much room for women unless they were actors that they could boss around. Women writers disappeared. There were no women directors. I think the next woman director was Ida Lupino in the late 40s, and he directed because her director got sick. And they shove all the women out. Oh! That... Ooh! 
Come and on. women disappear from film Ugh. everywhere but on stage. Why? 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 In fact, Mary Pickford's studio, when she closed that studio, a woman will not run a studio for another 50 years. No. Wow. And not Ugh. just the industry changes, the movies change. Sure. What when is being created? You don't have women created? involved in the right. storytelling. Amazingly. <laughs> <laughs> Amazingly, women had an impact on how stories about women were told and written and produced. Mm. And also, just the people who are running things are no longer motivated by art. Before, the people making oh. movies are people who want to make movies. Yeah. Now, the people making movies are people who want to make wanna money. Make money. Ugh. I see. So the whole industry has shifted dramatically in a very short period of time. And then the next bomb hits the industry. Talking pictures arrive and everything changes. And a lot of the actors that people were writing for just couldn't make the transition. I think the uh, Singing in the Rain plot that we all know so well is based on the, that, based on really Clara Bow who was a vamp in the 20s, who had a very thick Brooklyn accent. <laughs> Didn't translate very well. A lot of the major silent film stars had terrible speaking voices. <laughs> you can't have someone who looks like Rudolph Valentino and sounds like Donald Duck. I mean, you and could. And a lot I of mean, these actors, you I could. I would love that, but I <laughs> yes. guess. Wall Street studios They're not said making a no. lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so everyone leaves. All of these silent film stars, very few of them are able to make the transition. Mm. But not just the actors. Most writers cannot shift. This is not the same thing. We are doing an entirely different structure here. Oh, As soon as you can talk, those long pauses yeah. go away. And you have actors talking instead of meaningfully gazing right yeah. instead of showing they're talking oh and interesting if you wrote those you might not be able to write these yeah huh i never really thought of that as a totally different form of storytelling but i mean i guess yeah, it i is. never thought about it thinking of an entire story in terms of images mm. versus thinking of an entire story in terms of snappy dialogue like yeah, tell a whole I mean, story in words instead of images and banter right yeah the witty yeah. banter that we know from movies in the 30s and 40s right. zingers francis marion is one of the very few screenwriters who effortlessly shifts she is oh. just as good at writing talkies as she was at silent films wow Probably because she is good at writing everything. She has been a newspaper reporter. She has mm. written novels. She's writing plays. She can do all the things. Again, it's very irritating to those of us <laughs> who can't do all the things. <laughs> For example, as we said, the film we opened this episode with, The Poor Little Rich Girl from 1917, is not the Shirley Temple version. But Frances Marion did write that version as well in huh. 1936. Wow. Her list of famous movies is amazing and, you know, writing for all of the most famous actors, everyone you've ever heard of. She wrote the original Pollyanna in 1920 for Mary Pickford. She wrote 
adaptations of The Scarlet Letter, The Red Mill, Anne of Green Gables, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Wow. 1933's The Prize Fighter and the Lady, starring Myrna Loy and Jack Dempsey. Yeah, going Hollywood with Bing Crosby. Wow. Camille with Greta Garbo, Riff Raff with Jean Harlow and Spencer Tracy. Wow. She wrote films for Marlene Dietrich, Basil Rathbone, Vincent Price. Dang. She wrote for everyone. Her filmography is a history of early 20th century film. Wow. Now, Mary Pickford luckily has a very nice speaking voice that matches with her persona. Lucky. But she's almost 40 years old. <gasps> Aged. Yeah, especially to play the young ingenue girl in distress at 39 <gasps> is pushing Impossible. So, Mary Pickford cut her hair. She bobbed it, as they say in the 20s. I know, it was scandalous, because that was who she was. Her hair was so iconically that ingenue young girl character, she ah. knew she needed to shift away from it, and she bobbed her hair. Wow. And she played a scandalous character. <gasps> that movie won her an Oscar? But Hollywood cynics say that she won it really for her haircut. <laughs> yeah, something's never changed. Like, remember how they said they gave Nicole Kidman an uh, Oscar for wearing the fake for nose? For her nose, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> that, yeah, the, the best way for a beautiful actress to win yeah. an Oscar is to it's play to be, an ugly person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Charlie Theron in uh, right. Monster. Right, uh, Monster, yeah. Yeah. So the more <laughs> things change, yep. the more they say the same. Uh-huh. But audiences did not love it. Oh, that they were pretty mad. Relevant. <laughs> I've just been having conversations about stars today doing that, like, mm. like she pulled a Miley Cyrus, basically, yeah. like any of those child stars. They have to make that yeah, transition. Yeah, we, we don't by... allow you to to grow up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they force the growing up by starring in the coquette. Yeah. <laughs> She and uh, Francis did one more movie together, and it wasn't successful. So Francis moved on. By that time, she had met Irving Thalberg, who was one of the people running MGM with Louis B. Mayer. And they hit it off. Thalberg was the other major mentor and good friend in Francis's life. And they made a lot of really good pictures together. This was a successful woman in the 30s. There very, weren't very many of those, as you know. She wrote the first gritty prison drama in film wow. history. They won an Academy Award for that. And then the, the next year won an Academy Award for the sappy romance. She wow. can do everything and she custom tailors it to the actors who will be performing the roles. It's really, huh. it's such a totally brilliant skill and it requires so much. Yeah self-effacement right there's the people uh -huh. who are going to write what they're going to write and, and you better fit yourself into it she is disappearing herself yeah. over and over again to create cool. roles that will raise others mm -hmm. and that's another pattern she is not afraid to take huge risks mm. she is not afraid even to take huge risks for others when she's the one <laughs> whose career is on the line, right? With Mary huh. Pickford, it's a pretty safe bet. It's Mary Pickford. Mm. But 
stories like this come up over and over again. She will constantly support other women in the business. Hmm. As I said, you know, she's this dynamic, charismatic person who everyone loves, but but everyone genuinely loves her. She is mm-hmm. a good person. Mm-hmm. She isn't a dynamic person who's a monster behind the scenes. She is mm-hmm. going out of her way to make sure that her rising tide raises all boats. When other actresses will come to her and tell her they're struggling to find roles, she'll write them a movie to cool. make sure that they get taken seriously. Uh, Marie Dressler, who was a famous, again, film historians will know this name, probably no one else, but go watch some of these films. They're amazing. She was a great comedy actress. Hmm. At this time, as now, if you're fat, you have to be funny. So she had come up through vaudeville, very successful career, but all of a sudden just wasn't getting roles, wasn't getting cast. She told Frances that, and Frances wrote her a movie, which went on to win her an Academy Award and relaunch Marie Dressler's career as a major star again. And she becomes this, like, queen of comedy. And Frances does this over and over again. She sees what is holding a woman Mm. back. Mm-hmm. She knows exactly what she's up against. And so she makes a way for her to succeed. Cool. Putting her own work on the line. <laughs> it's so, I mean, all of her talent is amazing, but this is really what makes her a hero cool. to me. She, it seems like she sees the talent in other people and then can write something that elevates them or, you know, writes them something that only they could do. Awesome. That in itself makes her a hero to me. I, I just am so amazed that throughout her life that was consistent. She was also politically active most of her life. She was one of those who uh, marched for women's voting in the I think 1917, 18, when she was marching for women's rights. As all of the women are pushed out by these giant industry moguls, Thalberg was still on her side, but they ran afoul of each other when Frances joined the union. She was one of the founders of the Writers Guild. It was a dangerous time to do that, too. It was an area where you could be called a communist and thrown out. And Irving saw this as betrayal, and their friendship started to fray a little bit. They agreed to overlook it and continue to work together. And just about that time, Irving suddenly died. He had always been frail and sickly, and it wasn't a surprise, but it was awful for Francis because it was her best friend. And when Louis B. Mayer came in and kind of gobbled up all of Irving's life, <laughs> uh, he didn't fire Francis, but he downgraded her pay and her contract. And she started to chafe a little bit at that. Oh. She could have just continued to write the movies he wanted her to write and keep her name in the films. Mm-hmm. But she didn't want to. She didn't no. want to. She's got to... self-respect. Yeah. And she's not going to do other women that way. Right? She's hmm. not going to do toady up when he's asking her to do things that are against her ethics oh. and against her art, what she wants to say about the world. Yeah. And so she quits. Yeah. And, of course, the realities of the film industry were no different then than they are now. Uh Uh-huh. 
And we've recently learned a lot more about what happens when you systematically exclude everybody but one specific demographic from the positions of power. Mayer was notoriously terrible for his treatment of women, Mm. sexually harassing everyone from actresses to agents, (laughs) while, of course, insisting on producing only the most wholesome films. Wow. Classic. His studio was a terrible environment to work in. And, of course, we can't say exactly what happened to Marion. She seems to have escaped the worst of that culture, although, of course, we can never say for sure. Yep. But she was very open about the problem of the treatment of women in the industry. The most famous quote that people remember from Frances Marion was her statement that she was looking for a man to look up to without lying down. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. Wow. And, of course, all of this is all the more reason why the mentorship and protection of these women in the industry and the few good men in the industry were so important. Yeah. And maybe gives us a hint of why she left when she did. Go, Marion. There she was doing it at the very beginning. She decided to write other things. She wrote novels, she wrote plays, she wrote articles and essays. She was quite prolific. She goes back to school. She went to USC in Los Angeles and studied sculpture, which she had not done before. And if you look at some of the sculpt, they're hard to find now, of course, but she sculpted busts of friends and, and was wonderful. She was amazing at it. You could tell that, that she had studied art in her youth, but it hadn't left her. Okay. <laughs> so she All just right. decides, okay, I'll do art again. She's just living her best life. Now in Pam Munter's book, Fading Fame, she takes some very fun, fascinating liberties with both Mary Pickford and Frances Marion's life and the life of all of these female film stars, tweaking history into fiction and playing around with what it might mean. Mm -hmm. For example, we get to see what it might have looked like if Frances Marion was in love with Mary Pickford, not just best friends with her. Ooh! Now, there's no evidence for this. Mm -hmm. And she's not saying it was. She's just saying, what if? Mm -hmm. What might that look like? And it's a, a really beautiful, moving sad glimpse into the kind of erasures that happen in history and the way that playing around with the facts can open up new stories. Well, the book sort of happened strangely because this is not my native soil, you know, at all. Pam Munter, much like Frances Marion, returned to school after a long successful career in another field, and she was doing an MFA in creative writing when she wrote this first story about Frances Marion and Mary Pickford. But after writing about Frances, my classmates loved the story and said, well, you know, you could make a whole book out of stories about this. I just laughed hysterically. I said, yeah, this was blood here. I mean, this is it. this is the end period. Thank you. I'm glad you liked it, but no. And then I started to think, you know, there are other people in Hollywood, both known and unknown, about whom I could write, because I know the story, I know the real story. 
the more she started thinking about these women, they wouldn't leave her alone. <laughs> All of these women who have been forgotten, who've been erased, whose fame has faded, wanted their story told. And so Pam Munter told it. In her 80s, she starts to become, finally, a little slowed down. <laughs> At the end of her days, she started to get sick. She didn't die until she was 83, but she had a number of uh, major health crises. And she moved in with one of her sons in Connecticut, who took care of her. Continued to write, continued to sculpt, continued to paint. Creating art until right up at the end when she dies at 83 years old. Just hmm. a, a really remarkable, dynamic, unstoppable force of a woman who had a huge impact on so many different yeah. fields. What year did she die? In 1973. Wow. When did Star Wars come out? wonder what she thought of it. Oh, my. I mean, she watched all those movies come out in the 76, 70s. right? That's what I was thinking, so must be. Meh. But yeah, I often sometimes think about that. The mm -hmm. Imagine Watching going the from... Change. Yeah. Yeah, and just... I mean, as a moviegoer, going from people mm. being so afraid of the silent train on the screen that they're diving out of the way, uh. like our grandpa who went from sitting yeah. in the theater watching all the silent films for free as his mom was playing the piano, yeah, to Jurassic Park. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that that is That's an amazing wild. Yeah. experience yeah. to see that change. Huh. I want that to be my story. I would love that to be. Mm. She kept doing the stuff she loved <laughs> right up until the last moment. I am so in awe of her, really, all that she did in her lifespan. So life well lived, I think. But what will I tell my heart? Huge thanks to Pam Munter. If you'd like to learn more about Frances Marion, Mary Pickford, the silent film industry, find links to Pam Munter's book and other resources, including links to some of the films that we've mentioned today. Visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com. There you'll also find links to all of our thank you gifts for our patrons, cross-stitch patterns, trading cards, and more. Great gifts for the holidays. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Music for this episode was provided by Daniel Henderson, Ease Jammy Jams, and Kevin McLeod. And our theme was composed by Daniel Foster Smith, and for this episode, played by Amanda Setlick-Wilson. And our silent film set voices were Matthew Mickle and Noah Mickle. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. 
Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. Yeah.